I want to talk to you about a phrase which is very common and it's true in so many areas of life. It's a phrase you're familiar with. And that phrase is, timing is everything. Timing is everything. For example, according to popular mechanics, a 90-mile-an-hour fastball by a major league baseball pitcher gives a batter a tenth of a second to see the ball, 75 one-thousandths of a second to assess the pitch, 50 one-thousandths of a second to decide whether the swing, and 25 one-thousandths of a second to actually start the swing, meaning that a batter has about one-fourth of a second to make a decision, which explains why my baseball career fizzled at such a young age. It's a phenomenal feat of timing to be able to even just hit a ball. Talking to your spouse involves timing. Right when your wife is finally about to get out of the house for a couple of hours to actually do something for herself, that's not the time to say, hey, sweetheart, can you stop at Home Depot and pick up a box of nails and a couple of two-by-fours? And by the way, can you iron the shirt? And remember that big ketchup stain from In-N-Out last night? I need that taken out. That's bad timing. And many husbands have sat down to finally do something that's relaxing. And and the way guys work is that we like to turn our brains off. And right when we get to that moment, that's when our wives sometimes like to say, can we talk? And we we have to understand that. Cooking has timing. My grilling enemy is chicken. The chickens of the world got together and said, we're going to die anyway. We're going to make it hard on him. Because there's about a five-second window between overdone and underdone. And I have served my family everything from blowtorch special to salmonella surprise. (laughs) And it's hard to get it right. So timing is everything. We have a lot to say to the Lord about timing as well. Because when we pray, our sense of timing generally defaults to the sooner the better, right? Right? No one has ever prayed, Lord, I'm asking for help with this crisis, but I'd prefer you wait a few years before considering my request. I really want this to go down to the wire. We've never prayed that. So really the issue with waiting on the Lord is basically that my sense of timing and God's perfect timing are generally speaking different. They're at odds with one another. And waiting on the Lord, understanding and receiving God's timing. This is very much what we're speaking of in our series, Strength in the Desert. The the desert of feeling that God has gone radio silent, that your prayers seem to be ineffectual, that God seems to have put you on the back burner in the midst of a desperate time of waiting on Him. And we've been learning some valuable lessons from God's people in the Bible. And tonight, we'll receive a lesson from, I think, one of the masters at waiting on the Lord, and that is King David himself. And King David's lesson for us to have strength in the desert is be relaxed in God's timing. Be relaxed in God's timing. And to consider this, we'll look at Psalm 62. Now, Psalm 62, like many of David's psalms, is a situation in which he's encountering some life-threatening crisis which his enemies are seeking to dethrone David, and yet he calmly is putting his trust in the Lord And Psalm 62 is very unusual because unlike some of David's other psalms, there's no anxiety, there's no fear, there's no impatience, there's no wondering how long God is going to allow this trial to to continue on. Rather than a, a distinct focus on the trial, David has much more of an emphasis simply on describing God. And talking about his character and his his timing and and how we respond to him. 
And so let's consider the entire psalm first, and then we'll take it apart piece by piece. Psalm 62 begins, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Now, Psalm 62 is classically outlined and divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 4 speak of waiting quietly for the Lord because of his strength, his power, his security. Verses 5 through 8 speak of, again, waiting quietly for the Lord because of his protecting power. And verses 9 through 12 speak of making certain to trust in the Lord because of the brevity and the feebleness of human life. And the marker, Selah, divides the psalm very neatly into these sections. But for tonight, to, to divide this a little bit differently, I want to think in terms of the listeners to whom David is directing his song, his speech, because each time he redirects his speech, he's speaking to somebody else and he gives a basic theme or a basic message. And I'd like to let that really direct our thoughts. And it might be helpful for you to Picture David on a stage giving a soliloquy, as it were, and he's on this stage speaking about his dangerous situation. And there are other characters. Upward, of course, above the stage is God in heaven in sovereign control. To one side are his strong and powerful enemies. Sorry over here that you're representing the enemies of of David seeking his life. And then over here on this side are his people, the people of Israel who are in danger because if David goes down, they go down. And then outward is the audience. That's you, so to speak. And and David is going to speak to all of these players in the drama. So I think it's more useful for us to divide the psalm according to, to whom he's speaking. The overall message of the psalm is don't let appearances deceive you. That even you, even though you may feel on the verge of defeat, only God has the full true picture and he is strong and mighty. And so we relax in God's timing. God will do what he's going to do at exactly the right time. So first, David speaks, as it were, to us, to the audience, watching how he handles this crisis on the stage of his own life. And his basic message to us is we can wait restfully from a safe place. We can wait restfully from a safe place. 
And so we'll walk back through the psalm verse by verse once again. Verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now we should note that the English translation supplies the verb waits for us. It's not in the original Hebrew, but it is, it is very much implied. But the Hebrew is basically, my soul is silent. It's just a, a confident assertion of something that's true, that he's trusting, that there is a, a tranquil, peaceful nature to his waiting. This same word for silence is used one other time in the Old Testament. It's translated rest, and it means to repose, to be in stillness and quietness. Now, I mentioned a week or so ago on Sunday morning that Psalm 4610, which says, Be still and know that I am God, is so often misinterpreted because in the, in the context of Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God isn't some quiet uh, a restful state the context is God will force mankind someday to stop making war and the prince of peace will come and stop all war and, and all weapons will be put down but in this context being still being restful being silent is speaking of a, a quietness and a, a calmness a, a relaxed state now this silence doesn't imply prayerlessness. It doesn't imply certainly that you're not going to share your trial with trusted brothers or sisters. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a, it's a resting attitude. It's a patience from a safe vantage point. And the reason David is waiting confidently on the Lord, he's so confident, it's very simple. The end of verse one, from him comes my salvation. I'm not trusting in anybody else. There's nobody else who can help me. It's only God. And the proclamation that God alone is the source of rescue, God alone is the source of safety, God alone is my fortress, God alone is my rock. This is repeated so often in the Psalms. You can just kind of flip through the Psalms and find this theme everywhere. And now David uses these metaphors for God that are so familiar to us. In fact, they're so familiar, I I hope they're on the tip of your tongue. I hope they come to you easily in prayer Two very memorable pictures of God in verse 2. First, he is my rock. He is my rock. And I want you to note the possessiveness. It's not just that God objectively is like a rock, but he's my rock. This is so important in the Psalms. This is over 20 times used to describe God. He's a rock of refuge. He's a rock who makes my steps secure. He's a rock upon which my feet are set. He is the rock that is higher than I. He is the rock and redeemer. He is the upright and righteous rock. And there's no real theological mystery of this. A rock is a large, immovable object. That's what God is. He will not be moved. And the second picture that I hope is familiar to you, that he is my fortress. Again, he's not just a fortress, he's my fortress. And it's a word that means a high tower, something that that towers above all of the danger below. It's a place of defense, a place of safety, a place of inaccessibility. It's a place where you look over the ramparts and you kind of go, yeah, to all your enemies. You're safe. And the result of reviewing these qualities of God, of listing these character traits of God in verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken. It it means I won't totter, I won't stumble, I won't be close to falling. There, There might be challenges to my faith, but I will not be greatly shaken. 
And now David turns from speaking to the audience to speaking to his enemies. And the basic message as he speaks to his enemies is, evil is attracted to weakness, but will not prevail. Evil is attracted to weakness, but will not prevail. And he says to his enemies in verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? How long are you going to keep going? How long are you going to keep this up? And he describes himself as a, as a leaning wall, a, a tottering fence. He's at the brink of some disaster. He's weak. And his enemies are swarming like piranha to take him down. And so David asks this rhetorical question, how long do you intend to do this? Now, obviously, this isn't an actual dialogue with his enemies. He's not trying to get them to say, well, we thought we would attack you until next March, and after that, we'll take the summer off. David is simply expressing amazement at how persistent they are, and he seems to be lamenting that he's under this constant barrage of of assault. doesn't seem at this point to be an over-attack. This is more of a plot. This is more of a plan to take him down. But the, the, the question has a rhetorical flavor to it. It's a, it is a theoretical question. And it does include sadness. It includes perplexity. It includes wonder at, at why this attack continues. It is best taken, though, in the context of what David just said about God as his fortress. David's saying, yes, I am at the weak point. Yes, I am vulnerable. Yes, you can hurt me somewhat, but don't you see where I am? I'm in the fortress of God. You can't do anything to me. So how long are you going to keep this up? How long is it going to continue? And this presents it beautifully, I think, that the concept of being relaxed in God's timing. There is a certain amount of frustration initially. How long will it continue? But we put it in the context of, okay, give it all you've got because ultimately you're going to fail. You are going to run out of ammo. You are going to run out of everything that you're throwing at me. So keep it up. Ultimately, there is no trial in your life which will take you down. It can't take you down. Now you might be under siege. The battering rams might be bouncing off the gates of the fortress. Arrows might be flying over the ramparts. But if you're hidden in the fortress of God, all you have to do is wait it out. And what's the longest you'll have to wait? Your lifetime. And if you think that's a long time, then sing the last verse of Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. Still no, what's the rest of it? We've no less days to sing God's praise until we've first begun. Yes, so... If you think your lifetime is long, don't worry about it. It's not. It really isn't. Now, David turns from speaking to his enemies, and I love this because now he goes back to us. And his basic message here is, see your enemy for what it is. And it's as if he's talking about them right in front of them. See your enemy for what it is, for what he is. David explains to us the real nature of his enemies. In verse 4, They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They are certainly enemies of the worst sort. They come from the ranks of would-be supporters and friends. They're hypocritical. They're outwardly supportive, but inwardly they're cursing David. And now by their actions, they're showing their true colors. But what I love about David's assessment here is he's speaking back to the audience, speaking back to us, I love how objective he's being. 
He's even addressing us instead of them. It's like he's not even going to give them the time of day. It's like they're standing right here while he's saying, see these bozos over here? They're nothing but hypocrites and liars. And the enemies are all, hello, we're right here. And David's going, talk to the hand because I don't need to mess with you. I know exactly who you are. I know what you are. And he evaluates correctly what his real enemy is. Your so-called enemy, it might be cancer. It might be a debilitating physical problem. It might be some sudden tragedy. It might be a broken relationship. It might be financial challenges. There are all kinds of flavors. But ultimately, all things related to evil and pain in your life will be defeated either now or in the life to come. It will be defeated. Don't give your enemy more power than it really has. Cancer only has the power to temporarily render your body unable to function or live. That's not a big deal. We are in the resurrection, according to Colossians 3. Physical problems only have power to make you uncomfortable briefly until eternity with Christ. Broken relationships only have the power to break your heart for a short time. Financial challenges are simply a means to learn to trust the Lord for a while until you do what Job said, In Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Your enemies are not all that they say they are. And remember this, God may be a fortress of defense, but eventually he'll bring out the cannons and start firing back. David has spoken to us. His basic message is we can wait restfully from a safe place. He's spoken to his enemies with the basic message being that evil is attracted to weakness but will not prevail. He's spoken to us again with his basic message, see your enemy for what he is. And now in in the center of the psalm, the core of the psalm, the, the major message of the psalm, David speaks to himself. And he reminds himself of the key spiritual truths by repeating what he said to us. And his basic message to himself is, calm down, my soul. Calm down, my soul. David endeavors to practice what he's preaching, and so he calms himself by contemplating the nature of God. Verses 5 and 6 are an almost exact replica of verses 1 and 2. He is repeating truth, not a bad habit to get into. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. This is verse 5. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Instead of my salvation in verse 1, now David says, my hope is from God. Instead of I shall not be greatly shaken, there's an even bigger sense of confidence, a bigger sense of determination. I shall not be shaken, period. And he increases his confidence. And listen to this beautiful picture of trusting in God's strength. In verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. This is so key, this preposition here, on God, on God, on God rests my salvation. On nothing else, he's responsible, he's in charge. This is his purview. He's bearing the weight of the load. You remember being a little kid and trying to pick something up and you couldn't do it and your dad came up and got it with one hand and hoisted it over his shoulder and held your hand with the other one? That's the picture that we have. I can't bear this burden. I can't lift it. But my heavenly father can hoist it up easily and still have plenty of room left for me. 
It's a picture of a strong man bearing a burden that's too big for you. But not only on God rests David's salvation, but he says his glory. Now, don't take this as David wanting to receive glory that's due only to God, but it is David tying any glory he receives to God's glory. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Wherein we should glory, but in him who saves us. Our honor may well be left with him who secures our souls to find all in God and the glory in that it is so is one of the sure marks of an enlightened soul. In other words, your honor and God's honor are bound up together. They're tied together. You emerging victorious through a trial rests solely on the Lord and it's for his glory. It would not glorify God for him to not resolve a crisis in your life, either now or in the life to come. You will never in heaven hear God addressing a believer saying, I almost resolved everything. That will never happen. In fact, there's a key difference between verse five and verse one. Remember that in verse one, the English translation supplies an implied verb, my soul waits in silence. But in verse 5, when David's speaking to himself, when he's, when he's counseling his own soul, there is an overt verb. It's right there in the text. It's an imperative, a command to himself. Wait in silence, in restfulness for God alone. Look how many times this theme is repeated. Verse 1, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he alone is my rock. Verse 5, for God alone, oh, my soul wait in silence. Verse 6, he only is my rock. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation. Over and over again, he is speaking to himself. He is counseling himself. Now, David, if we can still picture him on stage speaking to various audiences, I would picture that he goes to the balcony of his palace off to one side to speak to his people to speak to those who are counting on his continued, consistent kingship. Remember that in the ancient world, and frankly, even in many parts of the world today, the violent and sudden transfer of power often means that innocent people will die by the thousands. And so very few people in Israel would want this transfer of power. It is in the people's best interest for God's chosen king, David, to continue a long, consistent reign. And so David as it were, goes to the balcony of his palace and addresses his people. And his basic message is, trust God and pray like never before. Trust God and pray like never never before. In verse eight, he says, trust him in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. First, David gives a general principle, trust in him at all times. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that feels too general to me. Sometimes that feels amorphous and, and hard to grasp and hard to understand. It, what does it mean to trust in him? Is that, a, is that a feeling of relief? Is that an emotion? Is there something I can do to trust him? If I'm sweating bullets and blood about something, does that mean I'm not trusting the Lord? And when I'm about to find out whether it's good news or whether it's bad news, does that mean that I'm supposed to be eating cotton candy and watching Mary Poppins because I'm so emotionally happy? Is that what it means to trust the Lord? Well, I think David understands that that's, that's broad. And so he, secondly, after just giving a principle, he gives the most practical thing you can do to trust him. He gives hands-on instruction to his people. He says, pour out your heart before him. 
This is a metaphor for expressing everything to the Lord in prayer, every wish, every hope, every fear, every desire, every emotion, every radical thought, every radical prospect, every confession, every weakness. The implication of this picture is, well, how long do you pour out your heart? That's simple, until you're done. Until you're done. Until you have nothing more to say. Then repeat. This is what D.A. Carson calls praying until you've prayed. Listen, if you, if you pour out your heart, there is a palpable, tangible sense of, oh, of relief, of joy, a sense of confidence, and it'll be overwhelming. Now, you might have to do that again in an hour or in a day. But his advice is so good. Pour out your heart before him. Why? Because God is a refuge for us. I love the fact that the Bible pictures our prayers as being held up in bottles. In the book of Revelation, our prayers are said to be collected. The prayers of the saints, every single one of them going to the throne. Do you ever pray sometimes and you think that it went to Mars instead of to heaven? It just sort of feels that way. It's not true. They're all being collected to be answered. But it takes work. It takes effort. And I wonder if perhaps the Lord has allowed this time of waiting to teach you to pour out your heart in prayer because we probably wouldn't do it if we weren't waiting on something. So David's shepherding message to his people from his palace balcony, so to speak, they need him to be successful in the fight against his enemies. His message is trust God and pray like never before. And now David turns and speaks to us once again. And his basic message is, only God has actual power. Only God has actual power. Verse 9, those of low estate are by the breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. They are together lighter than a breath. And here's David on stage. To one side are his enemies, to the other side are his people. His enemies look strong, they look fierce, they, they look invincible, they're, they're mean, they're gruff, they're ready to kill. But David says, look closely, they're just props. On the stage of David's life, the, the fierce enemies are just cardboard cutouts. And it's like he walks up to him and says, look at them. They're, they're just hung up with strings and wire and there's fancy stage lighting to make them look really mean. But they're nothing. They have no actual real power. David says that all of humanity is deceptive in terms of what actual power it has. The, the lowly, those of low estate, they're just a breath it's the same word used in Ecclesiastes 1 when Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The lowly have no actual power. Those of high estate, the powerful, the influential, the, the, the wealthy, they're a delusion. Literally, they are a lie. They're trickery. They're deception. It's a mirage. And David metaphorically weighs them. And this is an important picture because in the Old Testament, importance and influence and majesty is most often expressed with the word glory, which literally means weightiness, the heaviness of someone, to be heavy with splendor, to be heavy with influence, heavy with majesty. 
But David says, put the lowly in the scales. Put the, the high, uh, those of high estate, put them all in the scales. And you weigh them all together and they equal, that's it. They're nothing. They're air. And so David, speaking to us, uses this knowledge to remind us that, that we can't gain actual power. You can't earn power. You can't steal power. And he, he reminds us in verse 10, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's saying, don't make the mistake of placing your trust in something other than God. It's short-lived. It can disappear quickly. It's of no value to save. There's no object of faith except God which will not disappoint. And still speaking to us. Now, David reveals that on two occasions, we're not told what these occasions were, but that on two occasions, God had given him a divine oracle, a divine word from heaven. And this shouldn't surprise us. David was not only a king, but he often functioned as a prophet of God as his numerous prophetic psalms which speak of the coming of Christ would indicate. But on these two occasions that he mentions, God's message is clear. In verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. Now this is a key theological point. The omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God, the fact that he has total power. And David's making a major, major observation for us based in Revelation, received straight from God himself, the omnipotence of God. And I don't want you to misunderstand. There's a point here that I think we don't, don't always include. The all-powerful nature of God, the omnipotence of God, does not just mean that he can do anything because he possesses enough power to do anything he wants. It means he can do anything because he possesses not just enough power to do as he pleases, but because he possesses all the power. Out of all the power in all of creation, God has all of it. And you might say, well, I have a little power. Great, don't die. I have a little power. Great, don't ever get sick again. I have a little power. Make wealth appear. You actually have only that borrowed power that God gives to you for any given moment, and that goes to true for whatever is oppressing you. It only has the power that God loaned to it, so to speak. He can do anything because he possesses not just enough power to do anything, but all the power. No one has any actual power except him. It's all his. And that's comforting. Psalm 147.5 says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm, or Romans 1 verse 20 rather says that the power of God is eternal. What does that mean? It means that God is his own power source. He plugs into himself, so to speak. Ephesians 1.19 calls the graciousness of God towards sinners, quote, the immeasurable greatness of his power. It, it can't be measured. 2 Corinthians 4.7 says that the surpassing power belongs to God. Revelation 19.1, the multitudes of heaven cry out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, implying all salvation, all glory and all power belong to our God. It's all his. And now in a fitting end of the psalm, David no longer addresses us or his enemies or his people. 
He now turns his face heavenward to address God. And his basic message is, Almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. Almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. He continues telling what God told him in those divine oracles, but now he directly speaks back to the Lord. In verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. God is the possessor of steadfast love, of the chesed, covenant-keeping love that we speak of so often. And that if you're part of the covenant, and in this case, in our case, now after the cross of Christ, part of the new covenant in which God will put his spirit into those who have repented of sin and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, that if you're part of his covenant people, God will reward your faithfulness. This is phenomenal. God saves us by grace and then rewards us for being saved by grace. How gracious he is. Those who faithfully trust the Lord should endeavor to live faithfully, not sinfully. And why is this? This is the key to the whole thing here at the end of verse 12. The Lord will reward and repay you for your trust in him, even when the enemies, even those things which goad you and hurt you and torture you, make you wait for God's deliverance. And when they seem to be surrounding you, What this means is that your trials are a means by which God will reward you and recompense you and repay your devotion to him. I remember as a kid being taught that suffering in general is not the same as suffering for Christ. That if I hit my thumb with a hammer, that's just too bad. But if I go overseas as a missionary and hit my thumb with a hammer, then I'm going to be rewarded in heaven for this. Do you realize what David is saying here? He's saying all suffering that you go through faithfully is a rewardable idea for God. That he will reward that. Remember the trials and tribulations, the enemies of your life, so to speak, they're just stage props. They're just cardboard cutouts put there by God to test you, to strengthen you, to drive you to himself. You can't in and of yourself have power over these things. In the time of waiting on the Lord, your own abilities won't get you any farther ahead than than only God can. So what do you do? What's your role? Well, David said it twice. Verse 1 For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Verse five, for God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. Psalm 62 was written by David probably midlife, middle of his reign, still enemies all around him. And and there's, there's always a question. In the ancient Near East, the only way you knew if your kingship was going to be successful is if you outlived all your enemies. That was basically the only time he knew. But when he writes Psalm 62, he's still in the middle of all this. There, there's always people around him. For the, Since the beginning of Israel's history, everyone's wanted to destroy Israel, and that was not, uh, not, there was no exception to that in David's time. But as he saw this, as he wrote here in the middle of his life, we saw several prevailing themes, among them the fact that God alone possesses actual power. But I was curious about what his faith would look like at the end of his life. And if we look to the end of his life, it was rich, it was strong, it was vital, it was even even more intense than Psalm 62. And we have insight into this because of one of the last prayers that we have from David. It's a prayer that represents what all of us should aspire to 
in terms of our view of God, our trust in his power and his provision and in his safety. This is the prayer of a man who has essentially basically lived his life. He's seen a lifetime of evidence of the faithfulness of God to those who are part of his covenant people. And this prayer happens on a very solemn occasion. You don't have to turn here. I'll just tell you the story. This occasion is recorded in 1 Chronicles 28. Verse 1 says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officials of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. So all of the leaders and all of the military of Israel are gathered together to listen to their king. And the occasion was that he was announcing that his son Solomon would be building the first ever on this earth permanent structure known as the temple of God, the place where God would meet with his people. This was a a huge occasion. So he publicly charged Solomon in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 28, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And then in front of all these people, David took the plans for the temple and he handed them off to his son Solomon. Then David announced that he had been doing some fundraising for the building of this place of worship and that he was donating tremendously out of his own wealth a a, a huge amount of money. And right then, David turned to all these assembled leaders and he took an offering. He said, here's what I'm giving. What are you going to give? And the leaders of Israel gave generously to the temple. Now, why is this such a big auspicious occasion? Why, Why is this so important? David is the first king under the Second Samuel 7 Davidic covenant in which God promised David that he would have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever as a theocratic king over a nation ruled by God. David has fought wars. He's defeated enemies. He's had insurrections. He's had those who loved him have rebelled against him. But now... At the end of his reign, he has endeavored to establish Israel as a force to be reckoned with all so that God might establish his kingdom on earth. And in a sense, in a beginning sense, of course, from a New Testament perspective, we know that this is still happening. But in the beginning sense, this was happening as the temple, the place of God's presence among us was going to be built. A Davidic Messiah-like king was about to be installed, a man by the name of Solomon. And so David essentially is coming to the end of his life and saying, God did all that he said he would do. He did deliver me from my enemies. He did reward my waiting on him. He did give all the blessings he promised he would give. And this is the reward time. And so David prays this prayer of blessing. It's a prayer that's saturated in trust and just soaked in confidence that David has in the power of God. He's waited for this moment for four decades and it's arrived God has delivered David from his enemies and now victory is his. All his detractors, all of his foes, all of those cardboard cutouts, they're just long gone distant memories now. And here is David's prayer, a prayer of one whose faith expressed in Psalm 62 has proven true. But I want you to listen to the possessive nature of this prayer that God acknowledges what God possesses. Listen to this faith. 
First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise you your glorious name. And that's what we call a slam dunk. That is a prayer where he has looked back over his life and said, you were faithful time after time after time after time. Your timing was always perfect. And what confidence he has in God's power now. His waiting on the Lord has paid off. God has delivered him from his enemies and he has endowed David with unshakable certainty and conviction now, of course, there is a caveat. There is a condition. God's faithfulness as an only sure anchor, his being a rock and a fortress is only true for those who have submitted themselves to the Lord for forgiveness of sin. David knew he was a sinner in need of God's pardon. Psalm 32, Psalm 51 tells us this. God is not a rock. He is not a fortress for those who will not submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. For them, he is judge, jury, and executioner. The certainty and confidence that David has is not readily available to anyone, but only to those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and his payment for sin to pay the sin debt owed to God and to his wrathful justice. But for those who have trusted Christ, we can take to heart David's lesson to us, be relaxed in God's timing waiting restfully from a safe place. Weakness will come to us, but it won't prevail. Evil won't prevail. See your enemy for what he is. Trust God and pray like never before. Only God has actual power and almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. There's a man that I can hardly wait for you to meet in heaven because he loves the Lord and he is unique and individual and I, I hope that God has retained his kind of quirky personality and that's Sylvia's dad. He is a he is a small man, very quirky, and he had a word that he redefined for theological purposes and the word was brinksmanship. Now normally brinksmanship is used in politics to speak of the art or practice of pushing a dangerous policy or situation as far as it can go to the limits of safety, taking something as far as you can up to the very last minute. But Sylvia's dad said that the Lord's work in our lives was brinksmanship. That God would take you to the brink of disaster, to the edge of the cliff, waiting to the last possible minute before acting. And from our standpoint, God's timing is usually a nail biter, isn't it? His gracious help feels like it's at the last minute. And we feel like we're just flying toward the cliff. And, and just as we're about to fly off, God graciously grabs us. And, and we want to say, why didn't you just stop me like 10 miles ago? That would have been so much easier. But from the Lord's viewpoint, he intervenes and helps exactly when he planned to do so. Yes, timing is everything, but God's timing is never different than what he planned. I've often heard people say, God's timing is best. 
And that's true, but could I challenge that saying? Because from our standpoint, from the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, we would understand it's not that God's timing is best. God's timing is the only timing there is. There is no other timing. It's only his. So what do we do then? If God's timing is the only timing there is, relax. Take a load off. Rest. Breathe. Everybody breathe. Breathe. Don't get to the end of a trial or worse, the end of your life and realize that you worried your way through the whole thing. You too will pray the victorious prayer of David after seeing a lifetime of God's perfect timing. So relax, okay? Father, thank you so much for Psalm 62, how encouraged we are And even compared to David's attitude towards you at the end of his life to see the scope of a man who has trusted you all of his days, literally from the time of being a teenager to his late 70s. And seeing the the joy and the delight of a man who cried out to you so many times, some 70 times in the Psalms, we see David beseeching you and, and, and seeking after you. And we see his prayers in other places in the Old Testament. And at the end of of his life, Lord, he is just absolutely victorious in his confidence in you. And Lord, might we reach that point sooner? Might we live this day as if we're at the end of the race now? Help those among us, Lord, who are waiting on you, waiting for something to happen, waiting for that restored relationship, waiting for that financial break, waiting for some break physically, waiting for whatever may be part of your divine plan to make them be driven to their knees to pour out their hearts before you but be with them Lord be gracious and be kind but I'd like to pray Lord that you would not resolve those situations until they have waited upon you joyfully so that they might have the satisfaction of relaxing in you prior to a solution so that their faith would be bolstered, that as they consider it all joy, whenever they face trials of many kinds, that they might be built up for endurance and for steadfastness, so that their faith might grow, so that the end result would be that we are so like Christ, so conformed to his image, that we trust you implicitly. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion for your kindness to those who wait, to those who suffer. And we pray that that would continue and grow all the more. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.